Welcome to Tech on Reg, the podcast that explores all things at the intersection of law, technology, and high-regulated industry. We're talking fintech, regtech, sextech, and more with thought leaders and entrepreneurs from around the world to share insights, trade viewpoints, and get us all thinking about responsible innovation. And here is your host, Dara Tukowski. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Tech on Reg, the podcast that explores all things at the intersection of law, technology, and highly regulated industry. Today, we are talking about privacy. We're talking about privacy, security, um, and all of the new legislation that is being enacted around uh, around our country. Specifically, we'll be taking a quick look at the new privacy legislation that finally went into effect January 1st, 2020 in the great state of California, the F- California Consumer Privacy Act, and what's on the horizon for the rest of the U.S. in 2020. We are very, very privileged to have with us today a real expert in the area of not only privacy and security, but technology as well. I am very pleased to introduce you all to uh, my very good friend and partner, Martin Tully. Hello, Dara. Welcome, Martin. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. So, you fancy yourself a privacy expert, is that right? I do. Not a fancy privacy expert, but someone who fancies them as a privacy expert. I feel like a few other people fancy you a privacy expert as well. Isn't that right? It's nice to be fancied. Um, So in addition to having had the great privilege of working with Martin for the past, I think it's been 13 years now, and it's starting to make me feel a little bit old. Uh, Martin has had a very interesting career. as a practicing attorney at several AMLA 100 law firms, um, he had the the great, great instinct and sense to venture out with me, as a matter of fact, about two years ago, uh, as we started our own uh, practice at Actuate Law. And this year has then uh, also continued to follow my crazy into the great world of RegTech as we founded our company, Cointech. Uh, But one of the amazing qualities about Martin and part of the reason I wanted all of my awesome listeners uh, to get his take is uh, Martin has a very unique perspective on sort of the intersection of privacy, technology, and really how the law is impacting that space, our clients, and really what's on the horizon. Um, He's been thought of as a thought leader in the space for quite some time, chairs several groups of the Sedona Conference. Uh, Martin can give you kind of his storied history about the many titles he's held within Sedona, um, but really drafted much of the thought leadership that has guided the legal industry through electronic discovery, privacy, security, um, and is one of the minds really kind of shaping the way our judiciary uh, and companies are sort of establishing best practices in the space. So I'm very excited to hear what Martin has to say uh, about kind of the new wave of privacy legislation that's, uh, that's now finally hitting the U.S., Uh, So, Martin, where I'd like to start is with the great state of California. Tell us why January 1st, 2020 was so important. Well, of course, everyone who hasn't been living on Mars or under a rock here on Earth uh, knows that on January 1st of 2020, the California Consumer Privacy Act of 2018, otherwise known as the CCPA, and no, that's not a nickname for a Russian hockey team, the CCPA went into effect with uh, earth-shattering, California-esque type consequences. Uh, The run-up to the CCPA's effective date has had the entire country in a real tizzy, uh, particularly because 
after the legislation was passed in a real hurry, which made it very interesting in of itself, there were some amendments and there was a whole line in Vegas about which amendments would be passed and which ones wouldn't be. And end of the day, nobody won because it was completely unexpected uh, how things actually turned out. But then after all that, uh, there was a series of proposed regulations that were issued by the California Attorney General that were supposed to help clear the clouds and make sure everybody understood concisely and without any question how to comply with CCPA. Well, before we get into uh, how cloudy or not cloudy the current state of the regulatory environment is, what do you think was, you mentioned that the legislation was passed in a real hurry. Um, why do you think that was? It, as a matter of fact, it was. And the reason being is that a person called Alistair McTaggart, uh, who is the Max Schrems of California, and <laughs> if you know who Max Schrems is, that's the subject of another podcast, uh, essentially a, a major privacy advocate in California who was very unhappy with the state of things and what companies were doing from his perspective regarding consumer data, uh, he launched a ballot initiative. And we don't have time to talk about the uh, California political system, but basically uh, through a ballot system, you can get just about anything on the ballot and it can become law in California. A ballot initiative was launched that uh, had a whole bunch of very restrictive privacy measures involved in it. And in order to stave that off, the California legislator dusted off a draft privacy statute and passed it literally within days. Um, I say it was in a hurry for that reason, but also it was sloppy because it is widely known that the statute that was passed had internal inconsistencies, typos, all of those sorts of things that probably wouldn't have been there had it been done over a longer period of time and more mindfully. Is the general consensus that that ballot initiative was really a response to, I think you mentioned sort of the, the use of consumer data generally, but do you think it happened in California one, because it was California and they're thought to be a generally liberal regulatory jurisdiction, or was this sort of in response to Silicon Valley, big data, um, and sort of the the way that part of the country had really been capitalizing on the use of consumer data, particularly in the, you know, in the last decade? Sure. No, I'd agree. It's all that and more. I think it was the perfect storm of the California system of getting things passed into law, plus the fact that California has always been at the leading edge of data security and privacy. For example, California was the first state in the United States to pass a data breach notification statute. So California views itself as being at the forefront of that. So it doesn't surprise anybody that California would be at the forefront of privacy legislation of this type, which is, of course, very much like the GDPR. Um, and the fact that a lot of the tech companies that people like Alistair McTaggart were upset with, and he wasn't alone, by the way, uh, yes, happened to be based in California. Well, don't. Don't tell new. Don't say that too loudly in front of a regulator from New York because they're going to start getting really, you know, territorial about who the real leaders in cyber security and privacy are. But again, subject for a different podcast. So we've got the California Consumer Privacy Act that is now in effect, um, and you mentioned that several regulations uh, and rules that were designed to clarify the statute had been put into effect. Did they do that? No, because they haven't been put into effect yet. Um, as I was saying earlier, the California Attorney General's Office issued proposed regulations that were supposed to provide clarity and uh, certainty 
with respect to those who seek to comply with the CCPA. But number one, here we sit well past January 1st of 2020, and those regulations are not yet final, number one. Uh, number two, the regulations answered some questions, but raised a whole host of new ones and actually added new requirements that go beyond the language of the statute. So the regs, in many respects, added another layer of compliance challenges for those who are covered businesses under the CCPA. Well, that just seems totally fair to those covered businesses, don't you think? Well, absolutely. And uh, just to get back <laughs> to your other comment, um, uh, you mentioned New York not wanting to be left in the shadow as California's uh, red-haired stepchild. That's absolutely the case because New York and other states, including our own Illinois, are very much vying to also be leaders in this area, which, as we'll come to, is part of the crest of the new wave of data security and data privacy laws. Okay. So we use the phrase new wave. Um very interested in your perspective. What is, in your view, the new wave of privacy and security laws in this country? And then I'm going to have a follow-up question um, as to how, in your view, it compares to what we're seeing in Europe right now. But let's let's start with the first part. Sure. Well, of course, um, many of your listeners who are probably, hopefully, close to my age, and maybe even those who are just fans of classic music, will remember the new wave music that came out in the late 70s and the early 80s. Who doesn't recall and who hasn't danced to Duran Duran, The Cure, Depeche Mode, and Talking Heads, right? Well, that was the new wave of music. This is the new wave of privacy and security laws. And while we're sticking here on our own domestic shores, uh, one cannot have this conversation without discussing the influence of the GDPR, which California's CCPA and other statutes are modeled after, or proposed statutes are modeled after in many respects. But you have, CC, you have CCPA, you have, speaking of New York, the New York Department of Financial Services cybersecurity regulations. You have the New York Shield Act, which does not create a super secret agency headed by Nick Fury. <laughs> it actually addresses some uh, important privacy and data breach notification issues. And a whole host of other states, such as Nevada, Washington State, and, and more, have started to propose statutes that look a lot like GDPR Lite or CCPA Plus. And I, we're going to see more of those laws adopted in 2020. Well, so I've, I've got a... I've got what we would call a dumb question, because I know we get this question from clients all the time. But at one point, the Federal Trade Commission, our FTC, was kind of labeled the you know U.S. privacy police, right? Right. We don't have a federal privacy law here we in, do not. in the in the great United States, but we have federal privacy police. How does that work? You're absolutely right. There is no single, comprehensive, consistently applicable data security or data privacy law that covers the United States. There have been a lot of efforts to put one forward. A number of bills have been introduced, and since California's efforts, there have been even there's been even more activity in that regard. But I don't foresee, for a variety of reasons that go beyond the scope of our podcast in the political environment here in the United States, I don't see that kind of a comprehensive national law going into effect in 2020. Uh, so what we're instead going to see is more CCPA stuff. Um, for example, California alone, there's already a CCPA 2.0 that's been proposed by Mr. McTaggart, as he wasn't happy how things settled out with uh, the California Attorney General on CCPA. So we may see uh, the California Privacy Rights Enforcement Act uh, come out in 2020. 
And other states that had shelved their versions of CCPA in 2019 are most certainly going to bring those up again in the 2020 legislative calendar. So you have all these states that are operating and you have attorney generals that are acting as privacy cops, both locally, but also beyond that. Let's remember, California is the fifth largest economy in the world. So to say that you're not impacted by California is to put your head in the sand. Um, but get back to your question, the FTC is pretty much America's privacy cop, both with respect to international and a number of domestic security and privacy obligations, which can relate to statutes, but also the FTC has its good old fashioned own enforcement of things that are misleading or deceptive to consumers, which includes misrepresenting what you're doing with their information and how you're protecting them. So I'm, I'm not gonna put words in your mouth, um, but you made a comment that- <laughs> But uh, you made a comment that there might be some other uh, reasons that are political in nature, unrelated to direct, not not directly related to the subject matter of today about why you do not anticipate any sort of federal privacy legislation being passed. Um, am I to infer from that that the general dysfunction happening in Washington, D.C. right now uh, is going to prohibit any meaningful uh, privacy legislation on the federal front, in your view? Yes. So unless those same people who live on Mars or under rocks uh, aren't aware, there is an election coming up in November of 2020. And uh, there could be some changes to the federal landscape in terms of who's at the wheel of our country that won't go into effect until uh, the following year. So it's widely believed that, uh, yes, that dysfunction and the run up to the election will mean that nothing will happen at the national level, uh, at least through 2020. So what are the, some of the common threats? Since, since we know we're not going to get one comprehensive law anytime soon, um, and certainly even if one was proposed, figuring out who's going to enforce it, the drafting of rules and regs around it, anything that happens at the federal level will be quite a lengthy process, even if we were miraculously able to get something enacted. Um, so we're forced to kind of deal with a state-by-state, jurisdiction-by-jurisdiction uh, mosaic of legislation and laws. What are some of the common threads that you see in some of the privacy legislation being proposed? Sure, that's a great question and it's an important one for clients and organizations to understand because we get the question all the time, well, I don't do business in California, so why should I care? I don't solicit my goods to people in Europe, uh, the, the EU, so why do I care? Well, the answer is that it's a global economy and as mentioned, California is the fifth largest economy in the world. Um, the internet is uh, global and to say that you aren't touched or affected either directly or indirectly by the, this new wave of security and privacy laws is, is quite naive. Um, if you are not directly affected, then somebody you do business with probably is, which means that you're affected. And for that reason, counsel to a lot of clients is along the lines of it, it, it's going to hit you eventually, much like the tide at uh, the beach. So you might as well be ready for it. And how can you be ready for this patchwork of laws, as you mentioned, Dara? Well, one thing you can do is to focus on the common threads. And what are some of those common threads? What you see are things such as disclosure and transparency. What does that mean? Disclosure as to what is the organization's policy when it comes to privacy and security and making that available to consumers and by extension to the regulators. Uh, what is being collected? Uh, why is it being collected? 
How is it being collected? From what sources? And, and who is it being shared with? So let's, let's talk about the what is being collected, because one of the pieces of the California Consumer Privacy Act that I and I think several other legal practitioners found, we'll use the word interesting, but I think several of us have more colorful terms that we would, that we would use to describe it, was really the expanded definition of personal information. Sure. And why and what was being collected? Um, for those of us who'd been dealing in data breach land with, you know, the general data breach notification statutes, which, by the way, every state in the jurisdiction has their own one of those too, separate and apart from privacy and security. Right. Um, those statutes generally define personal information as stuff that we would guess would, yeah, be personal information. We're talking about birth dates and social security numbers and addresses and bank account information, stuff that I think everyone could wrap their head around the idea. It's like, yes, obviously that's personal information. California in, in CCPA land went a lot broader. Oh boy, did they? And that's another common thread. So great segue, by the way. Another common thread is making sure that organizations understand that expanded definition of what is personally identifiable information or personal information or PI for short. What does collect mean and what does share mean? Those all were massively expanded by the CCPA. So to your point, we used to have this laundry list in the data breach notification statutes that we all pretty much knew what was on that list, social security number, bank account number, stuff like that. Well, PI under CCPA is much broader. It's basically anything that can be reasonably identifiable to an individual or to a household. And that's a lot more, that's a much bigger basket of stuff than your driver's license number. Yeah, I mean, great example. And I think as we were kind of working through um, with clients on some of their projects, uh, I think we were both used to getting sort of objections along the way being like, well, I don't collect that, I don't collect that. And we start walking through with clients what their website actually does. And you know, a simple question, does your website collect IP addresses? Well, yes, it's a website. Well, guess what? An IP address is now considered personal information under the CCPA. Absolutely. And I think after using a few expletives, clients would be like, all right, now we now we finally get it. It's really that broad. Uh, so there's lots of other categories of information like that that one would not intuitively or instinctively think are personal in nature, but like IP addresses and geolocation information and, you know, and a whole host of other random pieces of information that might be associated uh, with an address are not things that one would instinctively say are personal in nature to an individual. And I don't... I mean, I could be wrong, but even as a consumer, forget about me being a lawyer, but even as a consumer, I would never think of my IP address at home being personal in nature to me. I just assume everybody has that when I decide to log on to the internet. Um, so I, I found that piece of the statute pretty fascinating. It, it is a fundamental shift in the way that we perceive privacy here in the United States, which historically has been very different than it has been perceived in Europe for historical reasons. So yes, that's a that's a sea change. And that's one of the first things that engenders those explicatives that you mentioned is the broad definition of PI, which usually follows the explicatives that follow my explanation that you're probably either already impacted or soon will be impacted by uh, the CCPA or similar statutes. 
But then the broad definitions of who a consumer is, the broad definition of what does it mean to collect or to share PI, because the other thing that most folks will react to is, well, okay, so I may collect some PI, but I don't sell it. So I'm not covered by this statute. But sell is not all that the statute covers. It includes sharing PI, which basically means giving it to anybody for any reason that might have some advantage to you, even if you don't get paid for it. That's a lot broader than, than the typical, I'm selling information to an advertising company um, to do direct marketing. Uh, so a lot of companies will fall under that, that, that uh, umbrella that used to not to or think they, they, they weren't covered by it. And, and likewise, collect is much broader. Um, you normally would think of collecting PI by having some device or input method where someone would provide you their personally identifiable information as part of a transaction. Uh, the definition of collect under the CCPA is so broad to mean even if you receive PI from somebody else and you didn't collect it yourself, that's collecting for the purposes of the statute. Fun stuff. Yeah. Uh, another another aspect of CCPA are also the quote unquote reasonable security measures uh, that a company has to employ. And I always love it when statutes use the word reasonable. Um, because reasonable to some may not be reasonable to others. Uh, and I correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think the statute in and of itself has any sort of uh, outline or prescriptive measures like the New York Department of Financial Services cybersecurity law, right? That's correct. When uh, New York did its cybersecurity regulations uh, a few years ago, it laid out a very NIST-like framework, National Institute of Standards and Technology, for the cybersecurity measures that it was looking for those covered by the statute to employ within their organizations to protect information. The CCPA doesn't do that. Again, it was hastily passed, uh, and the regulations don't provide a whole lot of guidance. In fact, they provide zero additional guidance on what reasonable security measures are. However, California, in particular the AG's office, previously has identified what it viewed to be controls that if they were not employed would constitute a lack or a failure of reasonable security controls. And so those of us in this space are connecting the dots and trying to anticipate what the AG's office might find to be a lack of reasonable security measures, which if the consequence was a breach that impacted a consumer's PI that caused harm, you would leave yourself open to a private cause of action and potentially class action lawsuit. Well, that's lovely. So we're going we're gonna to use the negative to define a term that requires something for a company to do on an affirmative basis. So we're not going to tell you what doing it right looks like. We're just going to tell you what doing it wrong looks like. Oh, we're going to nail you to the wall when we figure out what it is that you've done wrong. And that's how we'll all learn, which is the beauty of this whole framework is nobody knows yet because it's all so new and not well-defined. So I've got, I think, more of an esoteric philosophical question for you, Martin. I get that the state of California and other jurisdictions, and there seems to just kind of be this global shift in movement to giving consumers back control over their own information and not allowing companies to squander and monetize uh, consumer information uh, without true consumer consent to it. I get all that. And I think anyone, we're all individuals as well. Um, 
can appreciate the notion that I would like to control my own data. I would like to control my own information. But do you think there are negative consequences that are maybe unintended byproducts of sort of the enhanced privacy and security efforts and there is a real risk to sort of the over-regulation on this particular subject matter area, at least in the way the U.S. is doing it? Yes, I do. And the real scope of it remains to be seen. Uh, and by the way, thank you for hitting on the third common thread, which is providing additional control by consumers of their information, basically the right to know what PI is being collected, to access it, and ultimately to delete it, which is very GDPR-like. But to answer your question, the enhanced privacy and security efforts that you see in the types of laws that we've been talking about as part of this new wave have at their forefront the intent of protecting and educating and arming consumers, as you pointed out. But they also are more deeply in, intrusive in and of themselves into our lives, right? Um, and particularly in organizations that have to employ people that they pay to do work and uh, just go about their, their daily lives. I can give you some examples. Um, enhanced security can negatively affect our ability to effectively collaborate. There are all kinds of great tools out there right now that allow people to share information in really amazing ways to get stuff done better, faster, cheaper, but they're not very good when it comes to security or privacy. So those tools may not be available, even though they could help us improve our lives. And Speed and convenience are things that often get sacrificed. Now, the joke I often make is that Americans like to uh, stand up and insist that they have a fundamental right of privacy, which will have to be pried from their cold, dead fingers. But if you offer somebody five bucks off of a pizza, they'll give it up willingly in 10 seconds. <laughs> so there's a real, there's a real dichotomy God, there. God bless America, right? Well, you know, for five bucks off a, a pizza, sure, you can have whatever you want about me. Um, but the other, the other concerns are... In our world, Dara, in the litigation world, for example, uh, the cost of dealing with um, both international and the new wave of security and privacy legislation here in the United States have a real impact on the cost of reviewing and producing documents in litigation. Um, not that we didn't always have to worry about redacting things like social security numbers, but as mentioned, that definition is now much broader. Right. And so there's a, there's a much bigger cost to uh, engaging in, in litigation because of these new regulations than previously. So here's, here's a question. Can you point to any examples of legislation that has been passed already on the books, not something new like California, that was sort of designed for this sort of protection, but has really sort of negatively impacted innovation? Sure. One really good example I can think of um, comes right here from our good old home state of Illinois. It's the Illinois Biometric Information Privacy Act, or BIPA, because we love to use acronyms. Uh, BIPA was passed back in 2008, back when financial institutions were getting really excited about using thumbprints and fingerprints to uh, implement and execute financial transactions. And there was a real concern by the Illinois General Assembly that some company would have this massive database of fingerprints, which by the way, you can't change. You can change your name. You can change what gender you identify with. There's a lot of things you can change, but you can't change your fingerprints without interesting surgery. Um, but I digress. Um, 
so BIPA was passed and was a very restrictive and is a very restrictive law that was aimed at dealing with the situation of a company collecting a bunch of fingerprints and then going bankrupt and then where would those fingerprints end up? That would be horrible for the consumers, right? That law sat on the books for quite a while until um, facial recognition technology uh, became more prominent and was used in lots of things such as social media, but also in um, visitor management systems or checking people in and out of uh, delivery docks. Uh, facial recognition can be used in a lot of different contexts to basically take a, a map of your face with 64 different data points, create a hash value that's very secure, and greatly increase the efficiency of controlling access and egress to a facility, which is great for security, it's great for convenience, all those wonderful things. However, Plaintiff's Bar figured out that BIPA applies to biometric identifiers, not just fingerprints, but other things, such as your voice, your retina, and your facial geometry. So Illinois has the strictest Biometric Information Privacy Act in the entire country, and it's the only one that has a private cause of action. It is very strict and has launched a wave of lawsuits, class action lawsuits, over the last number of years, so much so that there are companies that have some really, really cool facial recognition software that allows for uh, the kind of ingress and visitor management that I was talking about, great advances in terms of efficiency and convenience and security, but that technology is not being used in the state of Illinois because it's just too risky given that statute in the books. The statute is, by technology terms, ancient, um, but the Illinois Supreme Court has recently revisited the statute and said it is what it is, and if you merely violate it without any showing of any additional harm, you can be subject to some really steep penalties. So the negative impact of that, Dara, is that what would otherwise be technology that would make life easier for both consumers and businesses is not readily used in Illinois because, in my opinion, a statute went too far back in 2008, but they didn't know how far they went because things change. So you fix that. The really, the only fix there is if, if the highest court in the state of Illinois has sort of made their uh, proclamation on the existing law, the only change really that can take effect is a legislative one, right? Correct. Um, and there have been some bills that have been proposed that would uh, amend BIPA here in Illinois, such as to remove the private cause of action or uh, make it more right-sized to fit current technology in the, in the world as we now know it in 2020 as opposed to 2008. However, um, Illinois is no less dysfunctional in terms of its government than the federal government, so I don't see that happening anytime soon. All right. Well, Predictions. Let's talk about what, forget about legislation that's already been proposed and forget about common threads and themes. If you had to uh, make some predictions about what you expected the privacy landscape to look like um, at this time next year, i.e. encompassing all of the, all of the action um, in the privacy sphere in the year 2020, what would that look like to you? Well, let's start with one thing we've already both decided is not going to happen, which is a national comprehensive security or privacy law. Uh, so we'll probably be sitting here at this time next year uh, in the same place. Uh, number two, we will see, as mentioned, more states pass CCPA or GDPR-like laws, uh, some perhaps even more restrictive, because to your point, 
everybody wants to be at the cutting edge. And frankly, if New York or Illinois or some other state were to go beyond California, it wouldn't surprise me if California came around and did something even more restrictive. As mentioned, CCPA 2.0 is already out there. Uh, we'll see whether that gets on the ballot or whether there will be additional legislative action by California uh, regarding the California Privacy Rights Enforcement Act, um, which has currently been proposed. I think in order to try to stave that off, number three, we're going to see some major developments out of the Golden State, uh, such as, on the one hand, constitutional challenges to CCPA and CCPA 2.0. Uh, that, that, that litigation has already been floated, uh, whether it ends up in court and how it gets decided remains to be seen. Um, so let's let's talk for a second about uh, when you say constitutional challenges, you mean um, U.S. constitutional challenges, the state constitution, what commerce clause type stuff, commerce clause. Yes, type. Well, so what are what are people what are people floating? Do we have a little niche industry that we can capitalize on here, Martin? Well, we'll see. There's been some interesting arguments uh, floated that uh, may come in the form of um, uh, proactive piece of litigation designed to challenge the constitutionality of CCPA, given that it does have impact across state lines, under the, the uh, dormant commerce clause argument under the United States Constitution. Now, whether that comes up in a proactive case, um, probably not, because we would have seen it by now. It's more likely going to come up as a defense to whoever it is that is the, uh, which is the other thing I predict we'll see, is that the California AG's office will find a poster child or two to make an example out of with respect to CCPA compliance. And I suspect that we'll see that defense raised in response to that kind of an enforcement action. What do you think about the notion that, so one of the questions um, that I've been getting regarding sort of CCPA enforcement. We know there is a private right of action for a data breach that occurs under the CCPA if a company hasn't employed right. reasonable security measures. Um, but there's not a no, there's no other civil private right of action under the CCPA in terms of you failed to delete my data when I asked you to delete my data, right? Correct. So we don't think the plaintiff's bar is just going to sit down and take that, do we? No, which is why, not to digress from California for a minute, but some of the laws that have been proposed that are CCPA-like in other states do include private causes of action for the failure to do things like timely respond to a consumer request to know what's been collected or to delete their information. So we may see that in the books in some other state by this time next year. But to get back to your point about California and, and enforcement, again, very murky waters because the California Consumer Privacy Act is already in effect, and yet the California AG has said that enforcement efforts will not begin until July 1st of 2020, although the AG has already sent out press releases reminding all California residents that they have these rights and they should exercise them and let his office know if uh, there is not compliance so that he can decide, he and his team can decide whether to take up an enforcement action. What that enforcement will look like is going to be interesting because there are factors in the statute that one must consider, such as the nature and the persistence of the failure or the violation, um, as well as what steps have been taken to try to comply. The other interesting curveball in CCPA is the cure period. Uh, there is a provision in the CCPA that says if you are notified of a violation, 
you have 30 days in which to cure it. And uh, we're advising clients that if they ever get those, which of course, if they came to us, would never happen. But if it did, um, how you respond to those violation notices and take advantage of the opportunity to cure can be very important in avoiding an enforcement action by the Attorney General's office. So a lot of things that uh, no one really knows the answer to yet. Uh, so what we're definitely gonna know by this time next year, Dara, is a lot more than we do today. One of my predictions for 2020, I'm going to go ahead and ask myself this question. It's one of my predictions for 2020 is that I think we are going to see a nice little cottage industry of the plane of spar taking CCPA complaints, violations, and things don't, that don't otherwise have a private cause of action under the statute and bootstrapping them into more general consumer rights actions. Call it an unfair and deceptive trade practices claim. Call it bootstrapping it into a debt collection practices claim. But whatever industry uh, may be affected, I think that there is going to be some interesting efforts made by the plaintiff spar to take these violations um, and, and, and use them to trigger violations of other statutes. I think you're right and that that's going to be tested probably sooner than later because on the face of the statute, the CCPA says that a violation of the CCPA shall not constitute a violation of any other statute. But that doesn't jive with some other case law that's out there in California. It to doesn't. Your point. No, it 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 really doesn't. Um, that has not been decided yet. So one prediction I think I would agree with that you just made is that we'll have an answer to that question from some court by this time next year. Well, let's. Uh, we're getting close to our time here, Martin. So let's talk about. Um, something that I think all of my listeners always like to hear from my guests. And if, if we're thinking about data, privacy, security, your, your role in it and in both thought leadership and as a counselor to um, a lot of organizations, what would be one of the most shocking things one of your clients um, or fellow thought leaders would hear you say? I've got a few things that I can throw out there, um, and they're not necessarily in the same bucket, but let me give it a shot. Uh, the first, which is in the same bucket, is that I think you're going to see more and more companies treat laws like the CCPA as a de facto national law in the absence of a true national law. Now, that sounds ridiculous, Martin. Why would you say something absurd like that? Well, because it's already happened. Um, some folks have already seen that Microsoft announced that they are going to treat the CCPA as basically giving the, uh, the privacy rights for all consumers nationwide. And I think we're gonna see more and more companies do that, which is going to increase pressure by customers and suppliers and business partners alike for more and more companies to do likewise. And so even if we don't have these statutes, I think we're all gonna end up as a matter of course, essentially looking at something CCPA-like as the law of the land pretty quickly. Until of course, New York or Illinois passes something more restrictive and then we have a new national law of the land. And then it'll land. start all over again. And then we have to start all over again. Just like the tide, it goes out, it comes in, it goes out, it comes in, and there will be more than one wave. Uh, the other thing that I'll, that I'll mention as something that I, I see coming to a head pretty soon, and, and this may or may not shock people, but uh, it's, I'm predicting an epic confrontation between 
the advances in automated decision-making and profiling, uh, artificial intelligence, which I know is a frequent topic of your, of your podcast, Dara. Um, obviously, the prevalence and prominence of AI and automated decision-making and profiling is, is growing, um, but that comes in a direct conflict with privacy laws and security laws. It's already happened in Europe with the GDPR, and even things such as using AI to try to do advanced analytics on how judges decide cases, which is something that we litigators love here in the United States, um, in France, they banned that. Um, so we're seeing this conflict between advances in technology and advances in privacy. And I think we're going to see that come to a head. And it's going to be really interesting to see who wins. So when you asked me earlier about other examples of where increasingly more restrictive privacy and security laws have a downside, it could be undermining or eliminating some of the advances that we're seeing from artificial intelligence. And that may be a good thing or a bad thing, but we're going to see. But it's a thing. It's a thing. But it's a thing. We're going to know more about that thing as the year goes by. Well, I think this is the perfect note to end on. Thank you so much for uh, your time, Martin. I think My pleasure. I think that with all of the new regulations and legislation on the forefront, I think that epic confrontation that you talk about um, really goes to the heart of, if anyone listens to the uh, beautiful intro to my podcast, um, the whole point is that the convergence of law, technology, and uh, and regulation and highly regulated industry is not supposed to stifle innovation. What it is supposed to do is get us all thinking about responsible innovation um, and figuring out a way that we can all move forward productively and safely while still um, while still protecting the things that need protecting and trying to minimize unintended and dare I say, super crappy consequences um, of overregulating, particularly in the innovation space. Um, that is all we have for today's episode. Oh, Martin, before I forget, you're going you're gonna to be in front of like a room full of people talking about all this nerdy stuff really soon, right? Yes. In fact, in the first week of February uh, at RMAI, their annual conference in Las Vegas, or Receivable Management Association International, uh, going to be a couple of panels, both on the murky waters of the uh, data security and privacy landscape, and then a full hour focused on everything you always wanted to know, but were afraid to ask about the CCPA and how it impacts the receivables management industry and businesses generally. Two hours of action-packed thrills, chills, and spills all I, focused on privacy. It's a real no-miss. I mean, I... First can... week of February, and where else... Las Vegas. I can barely contain my excitement. And for those of my listeners who aren't familiar with receivables management, we are talking about everything happening in recovery on the financial services space. We've got banks there. We've got people who buy debt. We've got investors. We've got uh, service providers. Um, and everyone who touches uh, most of most of the debt in uh, in the United States. Um, it's a great it's a great show. Super focused on compliance and making the industry better. Um, Martin and I will both be there. Um, so if you're there, drop us a line. Thanks everyone for listening. 